What's up, everybody? Just want to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Jungle Television. Jungle Television is creating gourmet art and streetwear drawn and screen printed by hand here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, this dude, Alex, is making some of my favorite art. And uh, I have a bunch of Jungle Television t-shirts. They are heavy in my rotation and just always blown away by the things that he is making. The Mushroom Hunter jackets are some of my favorites. Those are really dope. But yeah, if you need jackets, shirts, hats, just prints, very cool prints, um, hit this dude up. The Jungle Television link will be in the episode notes along with the Instagram tag. And if you use the code DCP at checkout, you'll get 20% off of your next order. So take advantage of that. Check out the uh, the Jungle Television Instagram, Cruise Alex's designs. Um, they're very, very dope. And next level, appreciate his support and sponsorship of this thing. Let's start the episode. <laughs> What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support the podcast in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And uh, that will help propel the podcast into the tops of those iTunes charts which will uh, give it more visibility on the national and international levels, and it will help strangers find the podcast and uh, just help give more exposure for the folks that come on this thing to uh, share their tunes and their stories. Just a great way to uh, contribute to the sustainability of this thing, and I appreciate the hell out of all the folks that have already taken the time to do so. Got a great episode. Stoked to get into 216. Uh, Jacob Miller and I, we went deep, so I want to get into uh, this conversation as quick as possible and, and uh, try to minimize some of the uh, the ramblings that, that are going on and, and will continue to go on here up top. But uh, yeah, Jacob Miller on the show. We're going to get into that conversation momentarily. And uh, I just want to say that it was uh, it was so nice to finally get to do one of these podcasts in person. I've done so many of those these over the over the phone or over Zoom the last couple months during this quarantine situation, and uh, it was a super nice day today here in Portland, Oregon, and I got to go hang out in Jacob's backyard and uh, and and talk with him. So it was nice to uh, just sit across from another person and not have to look at them through a screen, which uh, has been working, but uh, really great. Uh, definitely got me fired up to get to hang out with somebody and, and have a conversation that wasn't, wasn't virtual. And, um, I hope many more are, uh, on the horizon 
That is for sure. And this was just such a, a cool way to get to know Jacob. I, I met him one time in, in passing at a venue, and uh, we uh, we definitely got into a lot in this conversation and uh, got to hear about where he comes from and, and his different evolutions as a, uh, a songwriter and a musician and uh, talked about his, his recent experience of, of doing The Voice, which I, I thought was uh, a really cool insight on that experience and and just his whole approach to it of of just kind of falling into it so i'm I'm stoked for everybody to uh get to hear that portion of the conversation um i just want to uh just mention a couple things up top one being that i've been releasing volumes of i dig records in this podcast feed and it's just this um podcast where my cousin and i each pick a record and then we do a deep dive on the record and play some tracks in the background and then pick a couple to play in completion. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, we've been keeping it pretty spread out genre wise. So, um, from rap and hip hop to jazz and singer songwriter and R and B and, uh, some indie rock as well. Um, there's been a few volumes of it released already. The most recent one being, uh, we did a Jeff Parker record, unreal jazz guitarist. Jeff Parker put out this uh, suite for Max Brown record. And then we did uh, Phil Collins's No Jacket Required. So that's the most recent volume that's in this feed. And uh, you can expect a couple of those to be coming out each month, if not more. We've been, uh, Rob and I have been cranking those things out recently. So. Look out for the uh, the next episode, which is going to feature uh, a conversation about Bobby Womack's 1971 release, Communication, and Alex G's most recent record called House of Sugar. Stoked to share that volume four with you very soon. Look for that coming at you. And shout out to Vortex Music Magazine out of Portland, Oregon. Thank you for your support for this show. And... Uh, giving it another platform to exist on. If you're a, a Portland local and you don't know about Vortex Music Magazine, check out the link, which is in the episode notes, along with uh, all of the other links, things mentioned throughout the episode. Those are all there, including the uh, the Jungle Television link as well. And if this is your first time listening, go back. Check out some uh, previous episodes. Like I said, this thing's coming at you every Friday. Don't forget to leave your iTunes reviews, super important to the growth of this thing. And, uh, I think we should, I think we should get into this episode. Um, haven't had a Portlander on for three or four weeks. So glad to, uh, have Jacob Miller on this week. He has called Portland home the last nine or 10 years. And, uh, this was such a fucking fun chat with this dude. And, um, really really appreciate his tunes he's he's such an amazing songwriter and and musician and he's got this record called this new home out such a rad collection of tunes and uh so that's up on all the streaming services and then he also recently put out a couple new tunes which are under the title quarantine and we'll feature one of those tunes in uh in the episode later but uh, let's get it. Let's get into it. Let's uh, let's do 
episode 216. Jacob Miller is on the show. We're going to kick it off with the first track off of this new home. One of my favorite Jacob Miller tunes. This is called Take Me Home. Let's do the damn thing. Take me home. Let's get on. thing i'm ready to deep dive <laughs> deep dive <laughs> awesome man um i'm uh i'm stoked to have the opportunity to do the deep dive with you yeah um, thanks for asking me man yeah you've been definitely on my radar for a while but i think the only time that we actually came across each other was that night at growlers at Bo, when Bo played yeah yeah that was that was my first time there actually i think it's a cool spot uh yes r.i.p to growlers and the library oh, is venue. It, that's right. It, it went. It went before the That's, COVID thing, so yeah. it didn't really have anything to do with that. It was just. It was just like one of those things where the, the landlords wanted to tear down the building and put a, you know, put an apartment building up. That's or a something. bummer because so, it's. I mean, I guess I get the, you know, 
lucrative making money thing, but that was a really nice place. Yeah, it was a cool That's, little... Uh, I don't condone of it by any means, but I see the shift. Yeah, understood, for sure. It's, uh, I don't know, it was kind of like having a house show at a at a venue. Yeah, like well, R.I.P. That That's a bummer. Yeah, I remember, actually, I was uh, there with my friend uh, Coco. Do you know Coco? Um... Anyway, she's friends with Isabeau, but she spilled, like, a whole can of wine on one of my white shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that's your big memory from, from the Growlers? was one of my first takeaways, because it was one of the first things that happened. I was like, wow, this is a big uh, can of wine I'm about to drink, <laughs> and then half of it went on my... <laughs> on the white shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Still wear them. They're actually right there. So, Well, I'm stoked to uh, to hang with you and, and, and chat with you about your tunes and where you... Where you come from, I feel like this is like a kind of a cool time to catch you too after your your experience with the doing the voice, yeah, dealing everything. But I wanna I wanna take it back to to Eden, Wisconsin. All right, and, and uh, yeah, what what was growing up in Wisconsin? What was your experience there, and and how do you uh, what leads you to music? Um, gosh, well, I grew up in Eden. It's about like five hundred people. It's actually funny. There's uh, three different population signs uh, from either any of the three ways you can drive into town, but they only update one every 10 years. <laughs> so every single population sign is different. It's like 300, 800, and 500. I haven't checked in years, but that always made me laugh a little bit. But um, very small town in central Wisconsin and uh, grew up in a, like, a very small community, um, Catholic. My, my parents grew, grew up uh, Catholic as well. And so we had like a couple generations living in Eden. Like one of my, one of my great, great, great something uncles was one of the people that founded the town in like the 18, I think like sixties or something Heavy like that. Heavy family roots. In yeah. This town. So like, even though it was like an incredibly small town, we've been there for a really long time. And so we were just like really steeped in the, especially the religious community. Cause almost everyone in that town was at least when I was younger, felt like part of the church. And that's kind of where I got introduced to music. And uh, my aunt, Rosie, was the choir director for the for the gospel choir there. And then uh, she was the one to give me my first guitar when I was, like, 12 and was playing, like, crappy pop punk music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about that. I'm yeah, about the, yeah. the crappy pop music. We all have music, roots. <laughs> you know? I'm still I'm still throwing that stuff on on uh, on certain days mm-hmm. just to take it back. Hey, there's a time and a place, right? Yeah, I feel like there it's perfect for road tripping still. Oh all, yeah, all of that music mm. is is super great music for that. Totally. Um, so how far away is Eden from a major city in Wisconsin? Um, Eden's in Fond du Lac County, which is um. Pretty central Fond du Lac, uh, the city. That's where my folks live now and a couple of relatives. Uh, it's like 35,000, so relatively small. But Milwaukee or Madison's probably the biggest city, and that's like an hour and a half south of, of where I grew up. So, yeah, I went to college in Milwaukee for like a semester before um, realizing I d- had no idea what I was doing. And, and then I, yeah, made the decision to move out to Portland at, when I was about ni- 18, 19. I have been to Milwaukee twice. And it is a interesting city. <laughs> I I love it. I've Me like too. fallen in love with that city both times. Both times I've left there, I've looked for jobs there and like tried to speak to my connections that That's I've great. made after after going there. I don't know. It was uh There's a really cool bar there. Um the name escapes me right now, but it's a spy bar 
and you like go through the secret bookcase to get in and you like when you're waiting for your food go around and it's a whole uh, kind of like maze and scavenger <laughs> hunt and there's like all this weird like 1970s risque shit around <laughs> it's pretty funny that's awesome i'll remember the name and let you know so we can <laughs> so you can go give him a shout out yeah um so that's where on uh on this new home you've got that saint mary's gospel choir so, yeah so is that like kind of where those roots come yeah, from yeah that song actually is so for the record the that i released last year this new home it was like my debut solo album after doing my jazz band and every single one of the songs on the record I had written within, like, the six-month period, except for that one, which I wrote probably, like, nine years ago now or something, quite a long time ago. It was uh, my first, after I'd moved out to Portland, it was my first visit going back to Eden. I think I was, like, 20 or 20, maybe 21 or something. And uh, it was just, the song has definitely, like, evolved with meaning, or the meaning of it to me, I guess. But, um, you know, it's like a relationship between this main character and this and his partner that he grew up with and they like kind of fall in and out of love and uh and then also has a lot of references to my catholic roots um but as the song and the years have progressed and like i didn't play the song for like five or six years and then when i started doing solo music again i had remembered it was in my repertoire and decided to start playing it and it just became one of those tunes that i play every time kind of and uh, now the song to me feels so much more about my relationship with this idea of God. So the characters in the story have kind of like, you know, it just develops and changes and molds to whatever way you're living now, I guess. So and that one's been an interesting one for sure. It has the most longevity of anything <laughs> in my in my catalog. Oh, it's cool when a song holds up like that, you know, yeah. something that you did start nine years ago or so and and you find that it does have a place in something that you put out last year yeah you can still it still means something to you you know yeah that's that's a it's a long song <laughs> <laughs> it's a story for sure is uh growing up around you know that culture of of the catholic family and whatnot did you did you buy into that stuff? Did it did that stuff kind of click for you when you were growing up? Was it stuff that you valued, or was it more of just like part of the culture of your family and not it, something you relied upon heavy? Yeah, it kind of was. Um, it definitely felt like part of where I came from, and was my father was incredibly religious, um, and it never really meant that much to me. Like it was just a part of life. And so on church or on Sundays, we'd go to church in the morning and we'd get there early and it was just, but then we'd see all our relatives and stuff. So it was almost like an extension of our family. And so we were never like a fire and brimstone, um, kind of family. Uh, but when I was like, I think 12 or 13, I was reading books on atheism and, and, and that kind of thing. And so I was, I, I kind of thought it was BS um, as I got into my adolescence and started kind of realizing that I actually went to Catholic uh, Catholic high school as well. And I remember really giving the religion teacher a run for her money. I feel I feel bad for Mrs. Huck now. So Mrs. Huck, I apologize <laughs> if you're listening. I really, you know, pushed it a little bit. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. It's like you're teaching very specific stories and ignoring other ones. It seems very... Uh, 
intentionally. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I think early on too, when you when you do start to catch wind of some other ideas, and then kind of realize that, you know, these are just stories in a book that that people base their lives around. It can be uh, take quite literally. Yeah, it can be a bit much, and uh, it's been interesting. I also grew up Catholic. Um, no, oh, really? Nothing militant, but did go to church most Sundays with my mom. I was an altar boy for a little while, nice. and um, I sang in the church choir when I was younger, and you know, did did some things of that nature. But then uh, I don't know. It was never it was never really anything that like meant anything to me either. It was just like part of my identity and part yeah. of our family's identity. And uh, but recently, uh, my buddy Andrew and I, um, who you know. Um, Andrew uh, from Brother Not Brother. Oh yeah, uh, put out that Blue You project recently. Totally, you were gonna play that house show. I think. Oh yeah, before this yeah, all that was this all went down. Um, but he and I started this ridiculous uh, Bible Buds podcast. Oh cool. And we've just been talking to people about their religious experiences and growing up and whatnot, and just like, like all religions are just yeah, mostly Christians. Just kind of we've been talking to you know, a lot of different people thus far and people that still identify or don't identify and just kind of yeah. like wherever they're at, like what they're, where they're at now with their spirituality and whatnot. So. Yeah, because it changes over time. And I think like, I don't know, whatever works for you. You know what I right. mean? Like, I don't, I don't think any less of someone for practicing any kind of religion. You know, it's all just the thing like if it works for you and and you can find solace and dependence and and stability in a system that's great right but also be realistic about it too is what i ask yeah and and don't uh you know don't proselytize and try to you know yeah don't try to uh it's just the abuse of those things that i think bothers me more than anything it puts a bad taste in my mouth but yeah i think that's uh yeah a big reason why many people end up leaving the church as they get older as, yeah as like andrew and i have like it's it's talking to like a lot of people like that i guess and it's just like oh what were those moments that kind of rubbed you the wrong way that that didn't make you feel like this was the Accepted right thing for or, you or yeah. whatever um and just yeah this is like uh seems to be a lot of judgment in this place that is a core value of this place is supposed to be don't judge people yeah <laughs> And it's also just, I mean, gosh, I could talk about it. <laughs> You're coming on Bible Buds, Jacob. All right, I'll cool. Tell you hey, what. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm signing you up. <laughs> I'm super down. Super down. <laughs> Got to hear about uh, you giving Catholic teachers the nuns hard times, you know? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I've got a couple stories I could share. But, yeah, it is interesting just also where you grow up, too. Like, you know, if, if you were born in a different part of the world, you'd probably be practicing some different kind of faith. And so when people get... I guess high and mighty, no pun intended, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, about their faith and why it's right and why people are wrong and their morals are unjust and all of these other things. It just, uh, it just feels very destructive and that bothers me. Likewise. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Here I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> so is the, is the choir the, f- the first thing you get involved in? You start working the voice out or what? Yeah, I was singing, you know, I actually, I've, for a long time, I really disliked my voice. And actually in choir, when I was a kid, I remember in elementary school, I was going to a Catholic elementary school as well. And we had like these little singing choirs in classroom, little chant singing things. And um, 
I remember lip singing because I didn't want people to hear my voice because I disliked it so much. <laughs> just so strange and like bringing way more attention to myself than actually just singing. <laughs> it's very, I don't know what on earth I was thinking, but the choir, yeah, I, I did that um, pretty frequently and then just kind of enjoyed music. My aunt who led the choir played piano and guitar as well. And I just always found it very attractive and... I don't know. I associated it with just creativity and just diff being kind of different or it, it felt like not many people from where I came from were getting involved personally with practicing or approaching music themselves playing it. And so, yeah, it felt like an escape that was all my own or something. Very cool. Was the Did you pick up the guitar first or the piano? Yeah, I picked up the guitar. I got uh, my... My aunt Rosie gave me a Gibson Hummingbird knockoff guitar that was hers. She let me borrow it for like two years. And I remember the action was so high. My fingers like bled actually. <laughs> like I would play the thing. So she taught me like, you know, G, C, and D, like three or four chords or something. And then I just, I remember I took guitar lessons from Mike's Music, which was like, it's the only uh, music shop in all of Fond du Lac. It's super, super small. And I, for like a year maybe, was taking guitar lessons, but I wasn't doing, I was only like learning songs I heard on the radio. So I wasn't learning anything about, I just wanted to be a rock and roll star at like 12. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's like a lot of uh, teachers' approaches too at that point too. They're yeah. just like, hey, what, song, what songs do you want to learn? Yeah. And then they'll explain, but I actually was, um, I guess, too, I, I often forget about this, but in fourth grade, I picked up trumpet and played for, like, seven or eight years throughout high school as well. It was never, like, my main thing. I never uh, felt like it was a vehicle of expression for me. It was kind of, like, fun to be, feel like camaraderie in the school band and, and that kind of thing, but playing guitar felt like my little safe haven where I could, you know, explore music you know, on my own terms, I guess. And you learned on that, that Gibson knockoff? Yeah, for so. like a while. And then I remember after like a good while, maybe a year, I was playing that Gibson. Or the, it was not a Gibson. It was a <laughs> knockoff for the record. But we went to Mike's Music, that only guitar shop, music shop in town. And, and this is like before Guitar Center and all of that stuff. But... It was, uh, I got like one of those Fender Stratocaster Squire packs that came with an amp. I think it was like 150 bucks. And I went home and just, it was like a black Strat with a white pick guard. And, yeah. you know, just this <laughs> tiny little box crappy amp with a one overdrive switch. And I remember just blasting that thing and <laughs> playing the hell out of it <laughs> did it blow your mind like how easy it was to play that guitar in yeah comparatively <laughs> it was insane because the other one was very difficult to play yeah so i got that and i think i had the, that stratocaster for like a while i think i had like a <laughs> so lame when you look back but i think when i was 13 or 14 i put a union jack pick guard on it <laughs> it was like so punk even though i don't know anything about music at all <laughs> um yeah i mean i feel like you know to some degree everybody's kind of a poser at that time you know you're just well, trying you're to figure out what you like and then but you do it like unapologetically because you since you don't know who you are yet at that point in your adolescence or at least a lot of people don't they latch onto it and it it's like you don't even understand me i'm 
you know, goth this week. <laughs> yeah. This is this is who I am, <laughs> Mom. Oh man, my parents were always incredibly supportive of my weird phases, though. So I. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful for that too, dude. Like I had a lot of. Uh, yeah, there were mohawks. There was long hair. There was, you know, I was pretty emo for a while. All the face, like the two lip rings and shit. Oh, you know? dude. I thought snake bites were the most legit, yeah, coolest thing. <laughs> and my parents, my uh, my stepdad's, uh, he's really into riding Harleys. He's been riding since he was like a teenager. It's just his like main hobby. And he's like a tattoo guy, no piercings. He's just covered in tattoos. And uh, I remember when I was like seventeen, I think I was like, "You guys, I I just need to get these lip rings. It's gonna <laughs> look so. I'm gonna look so cool. <laughs> Please just let me do this." And they were like. Absolutely not. But if you, they, they said this, which I think they were just prodding me, but she was my. They both said, especially my stepdad. He was like, "If you want, you can get a tattoo," and I was like, "You're just being cruel because you know I don't want a tattoo." Yeah. So now you're kind of just. Anyways, that was irritating. But I'm asking for a drum set, and you're giving me a guitar. Yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, I'm glad I never got the face piercings. Um, did you get the tattoo? Uh, yeah, I have. I never got the tattoo. No, okay, not the, not the one the we sen- talked you didn't about. Get that tattoo. Oh gosh, no! I waited until I think I was like twenty-one or twenty-two to get a tattoo because I, <laughs> I knew any, <laughs> I knew anything that I would have chosen at nineteen would just be like, so irrelevant to my life. Any like amount of time later dude good on you i wish i would have got all my tattoos today (laughs) (laughs) right i got Uh, all of them when i was like 19 and 20 and and yeah house tattoos see i don't mind the stick and pokes i think there's something like charming about them but yeah there's something about just getting whatever i mean if it's beautiful and you, you resonate with the design or the art i think that's but yeah i think i told myself that I resonated with the design yeah. because it was this like, opportunity. This is a badass decision. Yeah, I was just like, I'm going to get tattooed today. <laughs> I didn't plan on getting tattooed today, but I'm getting tattooed Is that today. what happened for your first tattoo? Uh, no, not the first one, but there's definitely like a couple where I was just like, I yeah, have... you're available today and you want to you want to tattoo this and you're going to do it for this price because it's something you want to tattoo? Tight. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I have been in a similar boat before. Nothing ever incredibly spontaneous, but a few on the edge i guess but they've definitely become interesting uh time stamps for me because since i did get them all so early yeah they're probably representative of different chapters <laughs> of your life oh yeah like a lot <laughs> yeah i feel like it, it definitely is uh maybe a more like uh dramatic one or that is hilarious you know, yeah just uh yeah i would have gotten like like a kingdom hearts tattoo or some <laughs> shit when i was like 18 and been like this is who I am. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank God for my <laughs> some semblance of patience. <laughs> when do you start uh, getting some sort of itch to writing your own songs and not just learning what's being played on the radio? Um, I feel like I kind of toyed around with it like midway through high school when I had started a band with some friends. And we had like a couple, <laughs> a couple songs... And it was just for fun, you know, it wasn't like, we're going to do this or something. It was it's your just high a, school band. Yeah, it was like a garage rock band. Or not not garage rock. We we were like an alt rock band. Fuck and yeah, we played dude. in the garage. It was Hell super yeah. fun. We did like, you know, some Van Morrison. And like, I remember our friend Ed did this festival called Ed Stock. 
And we were all like 13 or 14, and it was in this at his house in the country, and he set up this stage, and I remember we played American American Pie, I think it was called. You know that song? Yeah, Bye yeah. Bye Miss American Pie. And um, I remember I forgot the words um, entirely halfway through the song, and I was mortified. It was just one of the worst moments of my entire life. But... Um, the guitarist started singing the words, even though he didn't sing. <laughs> he totally recovered by fumble. But um, anyways, uh, yeah, we did that one for like a couple years and I was starting to write songs and, and play them with that group. And then there was like a whole kind of like two years where I did that. And then I did some like electronic music. And then I did, uh, I was in a metal band that there was lots of screaming yes. in. And then I got really into folk music. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's so strange how, <laughs> how that all happens because... It's like getting it out of your system when you're young or something. <laughs> yeah. I think there's plenty of people that were in punk bands and hardcore bands and things like that and then have gone like more year out. Oh, They're yeah. singer-songwriters now. Um, totally. Yeah, like I, I feel like, you know, City in Color is like kind of a situation like that, like that dude was in Alexis on Fire, and they were like oh, really? a heavier band. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, that seems to be a thing. It's you know? crazy. That was really, the hardcore scene was such a prominent thing in my town. Like, it was weird because, like, every, like, three years, the scenes would kind of, like, switch over almost. It's a small town. For years, it was Sky. I remember this. Uh, Debbie Jive and the Uptown Five was like one of the <laughs> That's most. That's such a good name. They were rad. They were so good. Devin King, my brother, or my brother, my buddy Ethan's older brother, uh, was like one of the best guitarists in town. And Jake Witowski, I remember they played. And then there was some other band called like All Your Friends or something. And it was just like very punk and ska and the circle and everything. And then it switched over to the metal scene, and it seemed like there was only metal shows in town for, like, a couple of years. And small towns are just weird how they... I mean, in my experience of where I grew up, how those shifts happened. It was yeah. just, like, what was... I guess, yeah, what was popular just kind of took over the scene and, and the types of shows and <laughs> just these weird little phases. Yeah, there's... Uh, where I grew up in Southern California, which is just concrete suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um we had this this venue called the Showcase Theater, and it actually was huge on the circuit for like punk bands and hardcore bands. What was so it called? It was called the Showcase Theater, and uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It shut down probably like ten years ago. Okay. Um, but just all these like big bands would come through and and play this venue. So it was like the cool thing that we had in the city, but. What city? Uh, Corona, California. Okay. It's like, I don't know, 40 miles east of L.A. Okay. Not too far from the beach. It's like inland, though. and uh, Sounds nice. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was all right. Yeah, it wasn't I mean, too far from L.A. to go, like, do some, some cooler shit, yeah. you know. But uh, <laughs> this, was, this was our thing, was this venue. And most of my friends played in, like, metal and hardcore bands. That, mm-hmm. was, that was, like, the huge thing late high school god yeah which was what, what year did you graduate uh i graduated oh three so i'm like what four years ahead of you or yeah so? i graduated in oh eight so okay. yeah and yeah it was funny because all my all of our friends would be in these hardcore and metal bands and we kind of had this alternative rock band <laughs> so we were like 
You were like the sore thumb. Yeah, yeah, the, absolutely. Like we, we didn't play. We didn't play shows with them. <laughs> God, it's yeah. It's just. I mean, it's so cool though how you stumble across that stuff when you're. I don't know. When I, I guess you can do it any time in your life, but in my experience, it happened especially in my teen years where I just like did like five different projects, and I felt like it allowed me to figure out what I liked and didn't like for like a long time. I was doing like programmed electronic pop music basically because that was so popular then. And it was really fun and it was successful. And I went on a couple of little tours and stuff and I was like 17, you know, so I did not know. What and you're just doing solo shows with it? Basically, yeah. We'd have like a computer set up and then sometimes I'd play instruments with it. And looking back, it all feels incredibly elementary and silly, but... I mean, for what it was, it's like, you know, you're a kid and you want to play and write music. And that was all original music, too. So that was definitely more inspiring because that had a really um, surprising reaction from people. And we we had good, pretty good success with the shows and, and turnouts. And so that was like a good boost to be like, oh, yeah, this is working. And I, I enjoy doing this and kind of gave me more confidence in my writing and entertaining the idea of being a broke musician for the rest of my life <laughs> is it safe to say then like is when you got that first guitar is that what you were doing with your free time pretty much yeah. was just playing music and for completely sure. immersed in in that yeah i mean i've been playing guitar for like 17 years now or something like that which when I say that out loud, I feel like I should just be so much better. Like, truly. Well, but you're pretty fucking good. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I God, I watch other people and I just, <laughs> you know, it's all relative. But the first couple, like, I didn't take guitar seriously until I was probably like 22 or 23. Um, so in high school, it was like definitely what I did all the time. Besides, like, playing video games and, you know, longboarding and doing other kid stuff. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts, dude. Yeah, oh, my God. So much Kingdom Hearts. So much. Um, but, yeah, like, songwriting and music exploration took up most of my time. Like, my senior year, my parents actually still don't know this, but when you're 18 at the school I went to, you could call yourself in for meetings or whatever. So like, Hey, I got a dentist appointment. I, you're an adult now, so you can yeah. do that. So the second semester of my senior year, I like my parents both work city jobs. And so they would get home at like four or five and I would call myself in almost every day after lunch. So I'd go in for like three hours and then I had like a study hall and choir and one other class. And they were all kind of like throwaway classes. I had enough credits to graduate. And so I would call myself in like three or four days a week, probably and just go home and go, I got a MacBook, just an old 2007 MacBook. And I remember I just program music and write music every day. And that was, yeah, definitely like my me time, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting because you were, you were doing what they want you to be doing at school to some degree of like yeah. advancing your knowledge or education on something. You were just like doing it your yeah. way. And it was all the technology was so new, at least to me, that it was, yeah, like a huge learning curve. So just pretty much invested all my time doing that. I mean, that was pretty early on of people, I feel like, you know, really doing a lot of stuff in their just homes or band. just, yeah, like a garage band situation, just making music that sounds huge on a on a laptop yeah oh my gosh yeah i spent just hours hours and hours like making little drum things and i kind of veered away from playing real instruments during that project because it was so like 
uh, people seem to enjoy it so much that it felt like easy and it felt like my little thing, you know, like my niche thing. And then like a year passes and you're just like, oh, this is just not satisfying at all. And I want to, you know, try other stuff. And then I started playing more guitar and got into kind of like Appalachian folk music shortly after then. Is that when you get start getting real serious about playing and, and thinking about doing this as a career? I think so. I mean, I was doing like the electronic thing and then kind of started writing more just acoustic guitar songs and getting into like, this was like around the time of uh, MGMT and uh, of Montreal and a lot of bands like that. And I was in college and taking drugs and it was just like this fun experimental time where diving into all this indie music that you weren't yeah, exposed to totally. in Eden, Wisconsin. Yeah. Like the garden state soundtrack <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and you're like, wow, a whole other world. Um, yeah, really though. It, it's funny. And your, your world just kind of opens. And I, like I kind of mentioned to you earlier, I was going to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for just a semester after high school. And then my friend who was doing, um, the electronic with, music with me in his own respective project he went on tour with this band uh they were called the the ready set and they got signed to warner brothers and like did a world tour and he was he had just kind of picked up the bass and just jumped on tour with them and, and, and it was just like oh man what am i doing and i knew i was wasting money and time in college because i had no sense of direction and so i had my mom was really supportive and was like you should you know if you're not feeling it you should just drop out and figure something out so uh, my sister lived in portland at the time and i came to visit and decided like the second day i was visiting i was like i'm gonna move here in like three or four months and uh yeah i dropped out and went home my hometown worked like two or three jobs and uh then came out here and rode the train i rode the amtrak out and kind of couch surfed until i got this first place i lived on uh, alder and 18th kind of by morrison there this barn-shaped house we call it the barn and uh, with my friends Lauren and Cliff and Jen and there was this guy Cliff who played ragtime guitar and that was my first time hearing finger picking like that and it was like it rocked my world fuck so you don't you didn't come to the finger picking stuff till I was like 20 1920 yeah so you kind of had like already informed your style of playing before learning this whole new way yeah yeah there were it was all very like not serious at all and i didn't move to portland to pursue music by any means i was just like yeah i'll get a shitty job at a restaurant and just hang out in the city and you know kind of do what i want i wanted to get out of the midwest and experience something i hadn't before and it seemed like the the right city to do it in you know yeah at the time too especially in 2009 like yeah for sure you you've definitely seen how this place has changed in the last 10 11 years I, know. <laughs> I mean i i feel like i caught like the very tail end of portland being kind of this cheap place to live i've, I've been here for a little over seven years now so like nice i feel like the last couple were were still it's the first couple of years were so i mean like i can't imagine living here in like 2006 even or something but when i moved in 09 there was a lot of people moving here at that time it was, it was becoming really popular i certainly wasn't before anyone i was kind of i feel like in the middle of things but yeah, I remember we had this house that my sister rented. It was on 28th and Gleason, basically, right by Palm Beach there. And um, 
She ha- it was like a two bedroom with a basement that was the size of the house and a backyard, and I think they were paying eight fifty a month <laughs> for the whole house. That's unreal, dude. Yeah, and we lived. I yeah, that was a great house. But so yeah, so I moved into this house um, in Southeast Portland, and pretty much just like I worked at this restaurant downtown across from City Hall called Steamers. <laughs> it was a dumpling restaurant, <laughs> worst name ever, and. Uh, and then every night I just sat on the porch until like two in the morning and smoked mad cigarettes and drank like tall boys of PBR and would just like learn songs basically. And I would listen to Cliff play and just try to like glean from his picking style. And then I became really, really obsessive about it all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was kind of, what kind of sparked you starting to play around? Like gigging? Yeah. It was actually quite a while before I lived in Portland, I think two or three years before I ever even played an open mic because it was just like, I wanted to like reach this level, I guess, which I don't know if that was me being too cautious or like introspective about it all. Cause I probably could have, but yeah, I played in bands all in high school. And when I got to Portland, I think maybe something about the city itself being a very art centric city intimidated me. Or I just wanted to get really good at finger picking before I ever. But I remember the first open mic I ever went to in Portland was at the Goodfoot. And do you know Jai? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was the MC, and then Jeremy was bartending, and Brian was doing the sound. I remember because I had seen all of them before. And I remember going with like my sister, or a group of her friends, or something. And I was so nervous, man. I was like so nervous, and I had actually just. It was after I had just done this whole um, trip where I, w- I was going to move to Tennessee. And long story short, this house that we were going to live in fell through. And so I went to work on this farm in North Carolina for a few months and studied Appalachian music there, like uh, 1940s kind of stuff, family country band music, um, while I was working on this farm. And then I went back to Wisconsin. I wrote St. Mary's there, actually, that song. And then, and, and then I went to Arizona, worked on a farm, and then came back up to... Oregon. So instead of moving to Tennessee, I ended up doing like this bit of traveling and working like uh, work share stuff. And when I came back, I finally, cause I'd played in bars along my travels. I was like, all right, I feel finally like I'm ready to play an open mic in Portland, yeah, which yeah. is like, what a buildup, what an anticlimactic buildup. So anywhere you went, you were kind of playing tunes around bars. Basically. And- yeah. There was this little, the horse brass tavern in hot springs, North Carolina is like a town with one street. I would play the open mic like every Monday night, I think, there or something. And then in Arizona, I played Coyote Joe's outside of Prescott. So, like, these these tiny little, you know, hole-in-the-wall places. But, yeah. So, I, yeah, I played the Goodfoot open mic. And then Jai made fun of me so bad. Like, when I went on stage, he's like, this kid doesn't even look old enough to be in here and <laughs> all of this shit. And then I played... And he was so kind and respectful. And he was like, holy shit, okay. (laughs) And he just kind of like ate his words, but was really like kind and decent about it all. And then afterwards, I ended up going there for probably like six months. Every Monday night, I'd play at the Good Foot. And I like knew the bartenders. and would. It was just like my spot that I'd come in every Monday and play. And then I started playing more open mics and just kind of meeting people through through doing that yeah start kind of inserting yourself into the the community and yeah because you meet all the other musicians who are trying to like play at the real venues and so like you can talk about your experience and then like the first yeah the first couple like shows i played were just like 
messes, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> like re- either like low attendance or like in a, just these strange places. And yeah, you really uh, sometimes you really have to climb the ladder. <laughs> yeah, you got to put it. You got to put in the work. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, and then it can be sometimes it can be I feel like tricky when you do start playing those venues early on because maybe you do bring out a good amount of people a first time or a second time by chance and then the expectation grows yeah and, and then yeah. It, and it can yeah i don't know it can be confusing to it's just like why didn't anybody show up tonight yeah Six, 60 people showed up the other night yeah, yeah it is weird and self from especially when you're new to a city and self-promotion is a thing it's just like I still am always confused by that kind of like ticket sales and numbers. I just try to invite my friends and right. <laughs> hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just hard because there is no, there's no built-in attendance anywhere. I don't feel like. Not really. There's I mean, like, I think like venues like Doug Fur in Mississippi. Right. They're going <laughs> to get. notorious for having great music. And so you're going to have some walk-ins maybe, but. Those yeah. are the those are the places though. Like or, maybe you're gonna get a couple at Alberta Street Pub or something. Totally. Or like, even I remember I used to play the Jade Lounge like yeah. often. I played the Jade Lounge a few times. <laughs> oh, hell yeah, dude! <laughs> and it's so small, so small in there. I loved playing that place. I I drank a lot there. I recall they Man. had these drinks called Tap Dancing Jesuses. I never had one, but I saw the effects that they had on these people. And <laughs> that's such a good name for yeah. a drink. <laughs> I feel like that's a great, uh, that's a great room, like a litmus test for people. <laughs> like if you can play, if you can sound decent in in a place like the Jade Lounge, you know, and have people walk away and say, "Well, that was that was really cool. I like your music a lot. I think that you have achieved something." Yeah, well, that was the thing about a venue like that is, <clears throat> you have ten people in it and it's full, and so like that was a great room to like kind of. I remember playing the Yukon Tavern. Have you been down there? I've been to the Yukon. I played the open mic there one time. Yeah, I played one of my first, actually, um, my my ex, she is a musician in town too, an amazing Joy Pearson. She's an incredible musician. And we met at the Goodfoot, and then she invited me to go to the Yukon. And I remember I went the next night, it was like the next night or two nights later, and I took a bus because I didn't have a car at the time. It's like an hour bus ride or something, and then you just get to this just total, like, it's amazing, you know, it's shake carpet on the <laughs> walls and everywhere. And I just, yeah, those are, it's weird that they now feel like the good old days because they were just so like debaucherous and I don't know. It's just, there's like a naivety to them. For sure. And there's no, aside from your own pressures of like your performance at those open mics there is no pressure of like a show it's it's just like hanging out with the other musicians that are there you're usually playing for the other musicians that are there yeah and then you're getting feedback and encouragement from other people it is really cool and yeah i played the open mics for a pretty long time and then when it was kind of like i started doing this kind of like jazz band jug jug band kind of group called the bridge city crooners and we started out as just like a couple piece band and then it evolved and we started like playing open mics together and i remember our first real show ever was at the firkin lounge and i was so nervous i was so nervous beforehand oh my gosh i i had no experience like leading a band like in my adult life it was all (laughs) in high school and so we had like an upright bass player and all this other stuff and but we played like firkin and the jade lounge i remember playing 
the Hawthorne Theater a couple times, which was then the Alhambra Theater, and they just like, oh, that was rough stuff back then. That was <laughs> dang. You guys played the the Hawthorne. We played the Haw. Or no, 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 no. We did actually play the Hawthorne Theater. I'm thinking of something else. Um, what is it? It was the Alhambra for a while. But then it was something else both before and afterwards. It was on Hawthorne. Okay. The Hideaway, maybe? No. no, it was like a theater. But they okay. really uh, shafted musicians, like, super hard. Like, I remember one time we played a bill there in the big room, and this we were opening for this band, and afterwards the manager <laughs> pulled me aside. It was like, I was like, hey, can we get paid? And she was like, yeah, like, come talk to me in the hallway. And she pulled out a crumpled $20 bill and handed it to me. She's like, here you go. It's, oh, gosh. It's like so a five-piece band dude. I was leading. Just like, oh, goodness you gracious. You got to return with yeah. no money for anyone. Whew, rough. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we drank some tap dancing Jesuses that night. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what yeah. are you talking about? You all got paid. Yeah. We, uh, but yeah, it was just. A slew of shows like that for a, a long time and just, yeah, then you just start kind of becoming part of the community and meet other people and share bills and grows from there. Um, so what kind of uh, inspires you to, to move back into the singer-songwriter realm of things instead of doing the the band thing? Yeah, well, the band was fun. Um, it turned at the end. It was like a six to seven piece band with a horn section, and it was quite the. There's some really cool videos that people should check out if they want some context for <laughs> Thanks, for this. Man. Yeah, the, the yeah, one inside Modern Man. Is, yeah, it was like really cool. a throwback swing jazz kind of stuff, which I still love so much, so much. Love that music, but I just had done it. I think it was like six years we did the band, six or seven years we released four full-length records and like an EP and we had seen some success and toured the West Coast a handful of times, but it just got to this point where it was like, I at the time was seeing someone who had kids and I was working a job, but I was also managing and leading the band and tour managing and booking. So it was just like really a tremendous amount of work. First, I was like wrangling six 25-year-old jazz musicians <laughs> and they were all very good boys, but like it was a lot of work. It's yeah. like six other children, basically. Sure. It's like having six other relationships. Too. Yeah, truly, truly. Yeah, the idiosyncrasies and the little nuances of each thing. So it was great. And we were playing lots of festivals and stuff, but it just wasn't like scratching this musical itch that I wanted to anymore. And so much of it was like fun. We were really involved in the swing dance scene, so we'd have tons of dancers come, and it was like a party. Yeah, just every fun, time we played, which was yeah, it was great. Like tons of dancing, and fun outfits, and people just having a good time. And I really missed that. But it got to this point where just like the the material lyrically, like the music really helped me advance as a songwriter and a musician because all of the guys in the band were like college graduate jazz musicians and I'm self-taught and so it forced me to really step up my game and my comprehension of musical ideas because I'm no wizard when it comes to music theory and a lot of concepts I have difficulty with but I try to wrap my head around it and be as you know knowledgeable as I can when leading a band of people that are that talented and like know the lingo and know how to interact and communicate while playing. So the band was like a gift in that sense, as well as the great times we had. But the vehicle in which the music was, it just wasn't working for me anymore. And so after a lot of thought and like just internal conflict, I realized that I just 
needed to stop doing that band and pursue writing solo music that was kind of more oh it almost is like more in the vein of what i was originally interested in anyways like paul simon and towns van zandt and these like classic american songwriters that are just playing with a guitar and I do like more than just acoustic guitar, like you know. Yeah, uh, there's obviously other instrumentation totally. on your records, and you can get you can get crazy Beach Boys stuff, and I love it, you know, like orchestral weird. But um, something really just pulled me back to just the guitar, because also too when we did the jazz band, we did a lot of iterations of the band, people being busy, so some it'd be sometimes a duo with me and one other instrumentalist, or then it'd be the full band or like a trio, and but when it boiled down to it, I was always part of the equation. And I just kind of gravitated towards more intimate storytelling. And like, I never in my life ever really written about personal things like my family or my religious upbringing and that kind of thing. Cause the crooners was such like a almost PG feeling thing. Yeah. It's a different vibe. There's like, you know, like marijuana references and like there's weird, like sexual innu- innuendos from old jazz songs. So we did like fun boozy stuff. Yeah. Like risque, <laughs> silly kind of like good time stuff. But the material doing the solo music is much more dealing with loss and, and like just a range of human emotion as opposed to just happy dance drunk. Right. <laughs> so it just, yeah, it felt like time to, explore other parts of my writing and and musical composition that feel pretty comfortable right away uh kind of bearing your soul a little differently after you it had felt, some years go by yeah it felt really good um it felt right and it felt honest where like the crooners as much as i didn't even mean for it to it almost be, like was like I was playing a caricature of myself because we had like the slick back hair and we wore the suits and it was just like this spectacle and it was very much like a you drop in time kind of thing. Whereas the solo music just came, it was just like it's I kind of had like an identity crisis actually when the band broke up because a lot of things in my life changed at that time, um, including the band. And I just like was like, oh, I was this guy who did old-timey music and that's been my role in portland for the last like seven years and not like everyone knew me or something but the people that did know me and especially in the music scene that's like who i was you know and all of a sudden i wasn't that thing anymore and i feel like i had all these expectations that i made in my head of what other people wanted from me and it really caused a lot of just like internal confusion and so switching over was really relieving but also still confusing because i felt like people weren't going to like it because it was so different than what I had done in the past. Um, so yeah, it was just really, really a conflicting period in my life. (laughs) But then it was so satisfying to later that year, I launched a Kickstarter for my, for my debut record. And I actually wrote and recorded the whole record in this house. Um, and I played everything on that record except for the strings and the horns. Um, so it was a total DIY project. Um, and then I raised uh, 10 grand with a Kickstarter c- completely organically, which like shocked me. Like I put the number at 10,000 because that's what it, even after recording like post-production and pressing vinyl and all that stuff, I like remember clicking the launch button for the Kickstarter and be like 10 grand. Oh my God, what are you doing? You've never like done this before, even with your old band that was established. And now you, you know, don't have as many fans as you did doing that thing. Cause you know, you're doing this basically building from the ground up. And it was incredibly encouraging. And then I just did like a ton of touring after the record. And yeah, here I am. Yeah, dude. I must have been 
felt pretty good to get that, you know, see that many people support Dude, the what f- you're I think 45% of the funds came in within the last 36 hours oh. of the 35 day campaign. <laughs> the last hours. I was so, oh my gosh, so stressed. Um, I would assume also it kind of <clears throat> made sense to you from a financial standpoint to maybe be able to hit the road on your own too, to yeah. maybe get to do I this had, a little more full time. Totally. I had never, I think it's every like musician or I don't know about artists, but every musician's dream to like tour in Europe. Like I remember being like 20 and thinking, oh, I can't wait to tour Europe. It's going to be so glamorous. And it's, it almost, <laughs> it which is not at all, but like you almost like view it as this huge milestone at least in uh, a, a completely DIY career such as mine. And so the crooners only ever toured the West Coast and did like a couple one-off festival dates, whereas being solo, uh, it allowed me to... I've toured the West Coast, I think, like three times solo, maybe four. I've done the Midwest twice and Europe twice now. And it just felt like it's still a tremendous amount of work and planning, but it does feel a lot more achievable. But you're also lacking this oomph that you get with the having other musicians. So, like, right. it is certainly a trade-off. It, it, I think, like, boils down to, like, are your songs good? <laughs> you know what I mean? Which some nights you really second-guess yourself, you know, when you, you know, you're in a city you've never been in and it doesn't go well. But it's really just part of the whole experience, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> For sure. Well, if people want to engage more in this experience you've got some uh some cool live videos aside from oh, the, thanks, the songs that we're going to feature off of uh some of the records that are available like that i love that uh saint mary's church choir version in the the doug fur green room oh thanks that's man. very cool thank you that was completely spontaneous like we didn't that's like yeah thank you yeah we did not plan that at all my buddy came in and he was just like hey, do you want to do a song? And I was like, I remember being, I think I was open enough for Sean Hayes. And I remember being kind of stressed. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll play a song <laughs> quick. <laughs> Did you, uh, was that just the recording from the? Yeah, that's the, like just the from the camera, I'm pretty sure. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah that, that thing came out cool. And then I just have a Thanks. a very soft spot for the, for the Doug Fur, man. Oh. That, that's, my, that's my favorite Portland place. Um, I think it's probably mine too. Like I love Mississippi Studios. Same. I know that's the the, I, the, the comparable venue, and I've really seen is. so many shows that I'd rather see at Mississippi Studios than the Doug Fur as well. Like I think different bands are better for different yeah. spots, but there's something very unique about the Doug Fur, and it's also the first night I moved here. My aunt and uncle also love live music and they just like wanted i think they wanted me to you know feel at home here yeah knowing that how much i love to go see music and That's the first awesome. night i got here they're just like hey we're just gonna go to the doug fur and, and see, see who's, who's playing, playing. and Kill, who's it was playing uh just some singer songwriter was playing a solo show I, I don't even remember who it was I it love was it. it was like a pretty um i don't know there was maybe a, like a hundred people there that night so it wasn't very full and it was just like Sounds whoa amazing. what is this place and uh um, that venue is so special to me the crooners had our first i that was also like kind of like touring europe like mississippi and doug for were always huge milestones especially like i had been in portland for a really long time before ever playing any of those venues like kind of like the more well-respected and more sought after venues and i remember playing the doug fur and it was just the funnest <laughs> oh god and we built a really great the crooners built a great relationship with them and we played like 
three or four sold out shows there and they always like brought us bottles of booze in the green room yeah. and just like treated us very well so i rad. really love those guys um yeah i mean i've never even played music there or pursued any music to a degree that i should be playing there but i've gotten like i fell into doing all this like the podcast stuff yeah and just I don't know. I've gotten to do so many podcasts just in the green room at Doug Fur, and I'm just like, whoa, I'm backstage right now? Or, I know, where so many of your favorite bands have yeah, played. Or, it, or it, now I've, like, thrown a few... I've, I've done a filming there and, like, thrown a couple shows there, too, and it's just like, this is so sick. This is the place. It's kind of like an institution. It is. It is very much... And I, I feel the same way about Mississippi, too. I just played there for the first time solo like about a year ago and for my record release and they were just really wonderful too yeah. that room just sounds so amazing it's intimate it has an intimacy that doug for doesn't right which i like a lot but they're both yeah both really nice absolutely man well i dig that yeah like i said i really dig that stripped down version it's a cool cool oh, thanks, spot man. especially if if you're familiar with the Doug Fern and you know you know yeah, that place if you've been too. in the green room it's a it's a charming little nook yeah, they've got that piano in there. Oh, yeah. I've been in there so many times where bands are just fucking around, yeah. too, on that, like, just playing jams together with the other band that's playing that night, and those are... I feel like whenever I play there, too, I feel really taken care of with the sound. Yeah, for sure. They're like not going to let you down. Yeah, no. They've got the stuff you need. <laughs> uh, along with that, though, you just uh, recently put out a video, Forget Your Love. Yeah. Which is uh, off this this quarantine batch of tunes that you yeah. put out not too long ago. And that's, uh, I'm imagining that this is that house in that this video. Is the house. That, that's the window I stuck my head out of right up there. And just kind of this cool look of, of everybody in the band playing in these different places. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> well, thanks for checking it out, man. It was a, it was a cool project. It kind of long story short on that i got back from doing the voice in la um in like Feb- at the end of january and i flew into central oregon i was with some family and then i came up to portland um to stay here at my house and a good friend of mine patrick Trault, um he's or ted Trault, he um he has a studio up in vancouver called feng sway and uh, he's like a friend of a friend of a friend. And we met and went, oh, yeah, let's work together. And it just kept kind of getting put on the back burner. And then I re- had reached out to him when I was in L.A. I was like, hey, I'm making a little bit of money from the show. I think I'm just going to sink it all into a new <laughs> record, which is like totally classic, you know, broke musician thing yeah. to do. But <laughs> you're keep here. investing in the machine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We, how else are we going to stay broke? Right. 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 <laughs> but um. I ended up doing this whole record with him over the course of like a month and it's like a full length, I think it's nine or 10 songs, all new original music except one cover, uh, Mr. Rogers song actually. Um, and anyways, we recorded the record and then I had this whole strategy plan to launch a fundraising campaign in May and then the Corona happened which really threw the plan and I just didn't feel good about asking people for money right now because everyone's so financially, you know, in a hard place. And so I had to kind of recalibrate everything. And so instead of like trying to push the record and like get it out or self-release, which I did with my first one, I was like, well, I've got these new songs. And so I guess I'll just record these as demos and just kind of put them out. And everything happened really serendipitously. Like, do you know, Margaret, 
Uh, yes. Yeah. So she had reached out to me and said, hey, if you have any songs you want harmonies on, let me know. Because we sing together quite a bit when we run into each other at shows and stuff. I feel like Margaret sings with everybody. She's Everybody so, that's dope, sing, <laughs> Margaret sings with Yeah, them. Margaret <laughs> is so talented and like... We won't sing together for six months, and then we'll sing. She sang with me at uh, MAI Festival in, uh, up on Orcas Island in February, and just, like, we hadn't sang in six months, and she just slayed it. All, and, like, five new songs she had never sang with me before. Just amazing. So, anyways, she had reached out, and then, do you know Grace Bugby? She used to play bass in uh, Ila Bamba, and then she also played in Black Belt Eagle Scout. Okay. Um, anyways, amazing bassist, but I had reached out to her because she works at CD Baby, and then randomly we talked, and I was like, oh, yeah, do you want to play bass on these tunes? Yeah, sure. And then Charlie, my buddy, my best buddy, he's uh, the amazing trumpet player. Killing he, it on the horn. Yeah, he's amazing. He uh, played piano and trumpet on, on either of the songs. And then a friend of mine reached out about album art and I was a fan of his artwork and it really just all kind of like domino effect kept falling and in this just perfect kind of place and it's so much work goes and in, goes into releasing something with like album art and distribution and post-production and just you know being content with the audio of everything and and figuring out what time of day you're gonna post and yeah, let somebody know that it's available so, all that so bullshit much stuff and then connecting like 10 different media accounts and, and players, and it really is so much work. And so we spent a long time doing that, and I had reached out to my friend Aaron Curry um, and was like, hey, will you do like a 15-second video teaser trailer for the for the, one of the songs just to kind of like help promote? And he reached out the next day. We had worked together once on a live video, and he was like, what if we just did a whole music video with everybody involved? And I said, yeah, sure. If you think we can do it, the song releases in like a week and a half. And so he conceptualized, conceptualized and shot the whole video and edited it. God damn. In a week and a half. This, and then it doesn't look like some low budget amateur video either. This, <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's got some cool effects on it. Yeah, we. So originally, I told him just like a time lapse of there. All the spring blooms a couple months ago were so great. You know, all the lavender and all the other flowers in the neighborhoods here in Portland. So I thought, oh, let's do like a time lapse video of some flowers or clouds or something. And kind of just totally left the ball in his court as far as whatever he wanted to do. I, he's got great ideas and a great eye and stuff. So he reached out and he's like, well, I've got all this cloud footage. Um, and my friends have the same cameras. They've been capturing cloud footage over quarantine. And maybe we could time lapse that. And then we ended up, he came up with the idea of, shoot, of filming everyone in their house playing their parts in isolation. And then also the idea that we borrowed a projector and took the clouds and then like projected them over me outside the window and then oh, yeah. in the office building and so yeah it was like a we did i think we filmed the whole thing in like four days and then he edited it and had it done the next week right on the day before it released <laughs> that's that's killer <laughs> well i'll put the link in the episode notes for that yeah that'd that be video awesome. and your your youtube channel in general and uh yeah this is a good time to uh to jump into that song get your love Okay, perfect. Oh. I've got something to tell you. I've got something to say. I try but become tongue tied around some people. Now I've only had one drink, but I. In a day, here and there. 
Tell me about this voice journey and how this came to be, and and you end up making this this deep run and getting some TV time, and you yeah. fucking put out you you do this bitching Bob Dylan cover where you just fucking crush it. Oh, thanks. You man. got fucking Kelly Clarkson saying all kinds of goofy shit to you. <laughs> <laughs> Her reaction's the best, dude. Oh my gosh, <laughs> and thanks. Yeah. <laughs> It was weird. It was it was so po- honestly like s- very surprisingly positive. 
Um, I had never seen the show before, and I don't really... I don't mean to sound like a negative Nelly, but I generally don't like things like that, Same. which is one of the first things I actually told the producers when they asked me about it. So anyways, kind of to go back to the beginning, last summer, I think it was like last, I don't know, June, around this time maybe, I got an email and it was like, hey, we saw some videos of you online. Would we, We'd love you to try out for The Voice. Oh, damn, and you got I, recruited. Yeah. And I thought it was spam, you know. And so... I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure I emailed them back and said no thanks, or I just didn't respond at all. And then I received a second email like a week later, and it was like, hey, this is a different person from production on The Voice. We saw your stuff. We'd like you to try out. And I was like pretty hesitant, and I talked to my buddy Charlie about it, who's kind of like my confidant and my musical collaborator most of the time. And he, his position was just go, just go for it. You know, like, what do you really have to lose? Like, why not, why not give it a go? And I was touring a lot cause I was just about to release my record. Um, and so I had a lot of like stuff on the books kind of leading up to, like a, a West coast tour, Midwest. I had just gotten back from Italy and I was going to go on a Europe thing in the fall. And so I didn't think much of it. I went, I, uh, I was playing a festival in Washington, Timber Festival, that Artist Home does. And I remember I had to leave early so I could catch the audition on Sunday in Portland, which I almost didn't do. I was like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm not going to go. But yeah, luckily I did. So, so because you kind of got recruited more and asked to like come audition, mm -hmm. did you still have to wait in some sort of fucking cattle call line with no, a bunch well, of people? kind of. So I ended up, it was it was a timed audition, so it was a set schedule instead of like open call. So I went to the studio on the west side. Um, I had never been there before, actually. And you go in and you're, you know, you're like, oh, cool, yeah, you'll be like in three people you're going up kind of thing. You bring your guitar. So they had you sing to a track, play your instrument and sing to a song and then like some other BS. And so I went in and I remember they were so good. Like everyone was so good. And I was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, this is so beyond, this is like, this is just not who I am at all. Like, but like just their vocal capabilities or music um, musically or. Yeah. I guess I feel like stemming back to like my own insecurities with my voice is like, I'm not like a pop, I'm not like uh, I like the runs, you know, like yeah. a Mariah You're Carey kind of like, Aguilera. Yeah, I'm I'm not a vocal acrobat. I guess is the best way I could describe it. And like my approach towards music is much more lyrically and emotionally based, uh, and musically based than vocal performance. Which is what it's like. The show is like super gregarious and like, you know, lofty, right. amazing vocal runs, and that's like Flash City, and that's just not who I am at all. It's like the antithesis of who I am. So, anyways, <laughs> I go to this audition and I go in. And I play, like, they're like, play four, you know, three popular songs. And I played Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And then I played Graceland by Paul Simon. I played that on guitar. And then I played this old tune called Two Sleepy People, which is a jazz song from, like, the 20s, 30s by Hoagie Carmichael. Did they love that one? <laughs> she was like, what are you going to play next? I was like, I'm going to play Two Sleepy People by Hoagie Carmichael. And she's like... It was, and I found out it was uh, um, Michelle McNulty, who was the head of the casting agency for the whole show which is pretty funny. So she like gave me this really weird look and she's like, all right. And then I played it. And the whole time she was on her computer and she was typing and like looking me up because she had a little profile in front of her of me. And then when I got done, she's like, all right, uh, what's this St. Mary's gospel choir song? And it was that video actually. And 
I was like, oh, it's just an original song of mine. She's like, will you play it for me? Which I guess apparently they don't normally do, so that felt like a good sign. And I did the thing. I was very self-deprecating and like goofy, which I, you know, to break the ice. Just not I, taking it serious either. Yeah, that just you're gonna really get this not thing. Putting a lot of eggs in that basket, and so I got out. And then afterwards, they're like, "All right, cool. We're gonna have you do an interview." I was like, "Okay." They so want to see if you're TV material, I Jacob. Guess. So <laughs> I guess some people, if they didn't like the performance, I didn't know this. They just were like, "All right, cool. Thanks for coming in." And then if they had thought you could potentially be on the show, they had you do this interview. And so I finally get in the interview, and uh, they're like, <laughs> this woman's like, all right, so who's your favorite coach? And I was just like, I've never seen the show in my life. Who are the coaches? <laughs> and, <laughs> like, yeah, she triviaed me. She triviaed my ass all about the show, and I didn't know anything. And it was just funny. It was pretty funny, actually. And we both laughed. She was really appreciative of my um, honesty and stuff. And it was just yeah, it was positive. And I, I basically walked away. They gave me a piece, piece of paper with a bunch of, like, rules on it. And they were like, cool, if we're interested, we'll reach out in a month and let you know. Drove home, didn't think anything of it at all. Like, a month passes, and I'm in, I had, did my West Coast tour, released the record, was in the Midwest. I had been in the Midwest for, like, two days, was about to start my tour in, like, three or four days. Um, and it was, like, Minneapolis to Nashville and back, basically, just solo by myself. And I remember I was at the gas station with my buddy or my brother-in-law Lucas and and I got this call from LA I was like oh god I bet this is the voice I forgot <laughs> I did that and I pick up they're like hey Jacob this is such and such with the voice um congrats we're super interested in you but we wanted to let you know that we never got your paperwork that you were supposed to fill out an application and do all this stuff I was like oh and she's like we really need that like as soon as possible I was like okay I can do it this afternoon I guess so I go home I do it. It was like a 25 page application. And on Jesus. one of the pages, they say, because you have to make like a artist profile because they apparently 40,000, over 40,000 people audition each season. So I filled the artist profile and on one page, it says list like 15 or 25 popular cover songs you do, which if you know anything about me, you know that I don't do a single popular cover song at all. So I wrote four obscure jazz covers and left the whole rest of the application blank. And I sent it in. <laughs> and the next day I get a call from someone on the production team. And they're like, hey, congrats. We want to fly you out and have you do your executive callback for the show in front of the show's producers. And I, they're like, if you have two or three days, you know, we'd love to have you come out. And I told them, I'm really sorry, but I'm starting this tour in two days. I, I can't. I'm, I've got like, you know, 20 some dates booked or something. She's like, well, if you have a window of like three days and I had a window or two days and I had a window of three days in Minneapolis. And so I was like, well, I was going to go to a friend's cabin. We we're going to go fishing. I was like, well, OK, I can potentially cancel that. And if you can red eye me and make make sure I get back in time for my gig, I'll do it. And so they did. And I went and uh, they had me play in front of all the show's producers, like get in front of this, you know, the lights and the camera. And then like there's like 15 producers that run the show. Um, and they were all really super sweet. I was the second person to go out of anyone on the whole thing. So I was like, right at like eight in the morning, your voice sounds like crap. And, uh, I did it. And then that night they called us all into two separate rooms, the yes and the no room. And I had made like a couple friends just, you know, we drank together and hung out at the hotel just the last day. And they called us in the room and they're like, congratulations, thumbs up. You're going to be on the show. And everyone was freaking out and so stoked. And I remember just being like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> What the fuck? I viewed it as a two-day vacation in L.A. in the middle of my tour. It was like, oh, yeah, I'll meet a couple people, maybe make some, you know, musician connections and yeah, meet some musicians I could play with. So then 
I had to like cancel this Italy tour I had planned for October, but long story short, like which I feel like it's getting on the long side, so oh, I apologize. No, I, I think that <laughs> this is I think it's interesting because uh yeah, I'm also like kinda in that boat. This is like not a show that like does really anything for me. And I think it's whether whatever side you fall on the, on that argument doesn't really matter because I, I think it's just interesting for people to get some perspective on on the inner workings of these things yeah, like i talked it, to Haley johnson about her american idol experience oh yeah and, and that was really i don't really know to her me. experience with um that. but i think it's yeah i think it's interesting for people to get to hear like what the inner workings of like a situation is like this and i think it's even more interesting for you being somebody that's just like so far I'm not away from taking this world. seriously yeah. um i kind of like told you to fuck off about your like <laughs> what songs i could play it's like you either want me to come do this or you don't it was <laughs> it was very much like if if anything especially walking into the situation it was such an amazing practice for me to like to remain remain firm-footed in my authenticity yeah because it was like you know basically they're hiring you to be a character on their show and they view, you know, as much trauma as humanly possible. Um, and I lost my dad when I was five and I got divorced a couple years ago around the time that my band split up. Um, and so those are like my two pivotal, like emotional moments in my life. And when they called me about the show, they were like, all right, so what do you, you know, what do, what do you, what do you want to talk about? And blah, blah, blah. And I just told them straight up, I was like, I will never talk about these things if you ask me about them but and that's what they wanted and they were they of course they yeah, want to fucking course, like dial didn't. in some some emotional connection yeah, between your dad and, and, you know yeah. they, they want some weird stuff going on and i totally get it it's reality tv but i was very unforgiving in my like <laughs> in my just i guess firm-footedness again so when we got the yes afterwards we had to take a psych evaluation and take this test it's like all this it's like a hundred million dollar machine this show is insane and uh I went and talked to one of the producers of the show and she's like, so why do you want to be on the show? And I was like, well, I don't really know if I even want to be actually. And we had a whole honest conversation and she's like, well, you know, what are you, what are your thoughts on it? And I told her, I was like, I am an independent musician, songwriter, and I care about like integrity as an artist. And I was like, my morals as a songwriter are here. And I feel like everything that this show represents to me is like in the backyard like just as far away from what I want to be doing as possible as far as like that. But I also recognize it as a huge opportunity to, you know, expose my music to, or at least my voice to, you know, a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't hear it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm down to give it a shot. And, and she was really appreciative of my, of my honesty. And, uh, I think they kind of didn't run into anyone else with that attitude and approach. And so they, kind of embraced it almost and they were very like i made like some amazing friends on the production team too like when i left the show the music department actually reached out and told me they're like hey we just wanted to let you know that the whole music department's bummed out that you're leaving because you had some of the most or like original arrangements of your songs and stuff so it's like i walked in thinking it was going to be soulless super diva you know like the contestants would be really cut through but really man like it was like a summer camp. We played Settlers of Catan almost every night, and we would like secretly drink whiskey in our hotel rooms, and we had curfew. Were you not supposed to be drinking yeah. or anything? And, uh, during the blinds, so the first month, we lived there all of October. You're so, just living in this hotel. Yeah, and you're sequestered, so you can't leave either. 
like because they're legally responsible we can like go to the mall and they don't want you is that also part of you leaking what's going on yeah you can't too? tell any anyone what you're doing either so like i had to do reroute all of these tours so it was like what was going to be like these little patches of downtime to really turn into any time i wasn't on the road i went back to la so it was like i think i did a west coast tour in june and july and then in august i went to the midwest flew to la went back and then I think I went back to L.A. in October and then was in Europe for a month. And it just all, like, it was amazing. Like, it, it really, it couldn't have happened any better as far as, like, scheduling and synchronicity of all of, like, me being able to do all the tours and the show still. It was yeah. pretty clutch. And I'm sure you made those connections with those people because they saw that you were just being genuine in yourself and you weren't there to put on some fucking dog and pony show totally and you weren't going to be this person that like conformed to what they wanted yeah and maybe even saw you as their own experiment of like hey let's see what we like what it's like if we have someone like this on the show and see how they fit in i'm sure that they've uh, you know had hard-headed people on the show before and it's not like i was difficult to work with i was just honest we're like with the wardrobe, they have you try on like as many outfits and then you pick four and those get sent to the producers and whatever the producers, four outfits that you approve and then whatever outfits you approve get sent to the producers and they <laughs> pick what you wear for the show. So wild. It's crazy, man. And like they give you all this stuff and it's literally a giant warehouse of, cl of designer clothes. Like it's crazy. And I go in and like I wore all my own clothes because I just told them I was like, I don't like any of this stuff. I want to wear my own things. And they were like, initially wardrobe was really like not hesitant, but I feel like uh, they weren't a huge fan of me. They're like, what? You you don't trust our style? Yeah, kind <laughs> of. Or just like this guy is difficult or something. But honestly, by the second round, I had made it to the show. Like we were all such good friends and they were getting me like all this cool vintage stuff. And we just like you just create a rapport. And even though I think that the voice itself is like completely like a capitalistic machine and i don't think that the network itself has a lot of like investment in the people that are on the show like it's cool that yeah you make a hundred thousand dollars and get a record contract if you win but there's no like follow-up like you're not part of some long-term family so i was really surprised at how much of a family unit in summer camp it was like just being there like we'd all go to restaurants and eat dinner together and like when we our little teams you know, you'd go and do wardrobe all together and practice and like, hey, like I'm feeling weird about my song. Could you help me with my arrangement? And you, you know, you were working with like a hundred other musicians trying to kind of make it, I guess. Um, it was bizarre. <laughs> did you feel like it, it did a lot for your, your confidence to be able to perform under those kinds of pressures? Or did you not like, what was your experience playing that like that blind audition are yeah. you are you like pretty fucking nervous walking out on the stage or are you still kind of like hey man i'm just like i can't even believe i'm here at a certain point the like i don't give a shit attitude kind of starts taking the wheel at a certain point because i remember being like a couple weeks in right before the actual audition and just being like i really don't care what happens like I'm about to go on tour in Europe and I have all this stuff on the books and I'm by no means like killing it, but I'm confident with what I'm doing. And I, you know, I didn't feel like I necessarily needed it, but then you prep so much with the show. Like you're, it's really is an investment of time. We live there all of October and all of January doing the show. And so you start to care, you know, a little bit, but 
I guess like I was really nervous because we were up at 3 a.m. the morning of our filming and I don't think I performed until like four. So you're like standing for like 10 or 12 hours, like makeup and hair and then interviews and all this stuff. And just like I just remember being fatigued, like exhausted, just ready to get it over, just like honestly annoyed that we hadn't because some people go first, you know, so they're like, oh, yeah. You're done for the day. That's awesome. You're done. Now, this person's got 10 more hours or whatever. So that was frustrating. But getting on the stage, like, they, they have you do this thing where you stand by the doors. Then they're like, all right, like, jump around and, like, pretend you have the jitters. And they're going to film it and add it as part of your thing. Like, all of it is very or- orchestrated and stuff. It's it's a formula. They've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah. And um, Obviously works. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and right when the doors opened, just like this kind of wave of calm washed over me. And I was just like, all right, I got this. And it was kind of like autopilot. But I was also the only person for the whole season that didn't have any accompaniment by the band. So I was just me and my guitar, uh. which also felt kind of like a fitting to the character. I felt like I was playing on the show of being kind of like more independent and and you know less yeah you're a musician and not just like someone to be like be there to be a pop star yeah like a like a puppet yeah i mean i that was it's pretty cool watching i've watched your your bob dylan like that blind audition a couple times i watched it like a couple times today thanks man i'd seen i'd seen it when it like came out as well um just because it kind of got circulated i feel like around our yeah. music community of like whoa fucking jacob's killing it on the yeah boys. that like, ever everyone was really so i was that was a big thing too actually i was nervous about the reaction of my peers yeah i was gonna ask but anyways you about i cut you off about what you were saying well i was just gonna say that it was cool to see the genuine expressions on the judges faces when like one of them says like he's fucking playing that guitar because <laughs> like yeah i don't know if they know beforehand or don't know really, they don't, don't know, know anything for sure but like it was cool for them to like pick up on that and it was just like oh like this is a musician like we're dealing like uh you know yeah. someone that's got a voice but can also really like move around on the guitar so it was cool to see that um but yeah i was i was curious were you was that part of you being reserved about doing the experience of kind of like wondering what people would think of you doing this very mainstream like fucking hollywood especially initially when i was making the decision of whether or not like in august when i got flown to la to do the callback i was just like i just thought it just it's just like stems back to insecurity because like you want to just be respected by your peers like who doesn't want to be respected by the people that they're around you know what i mean like and you want to seem like you have integrity. And I feel like the Portland community is so built on this, like, DIY, hardcore, you do everything yourself, everything you make is genuine and authentic and sincere, which is totally how I try to make my art. Um, and then you have this show that is the opposite of all of those things. Really, it is. Like, that doesn't mean that it's overtly bad but it is the opposite of all of those things. It is mainstream. There's tons of money behind it. There's lots of advertising. You know, it's not about artistry. It's about having a really, really fucking good voice. Right. Which I don't. And like it's it's a it's it's you know perspective totally. But for sure, you know, for for the thing that they want, I feel like I was a, I was a strange choice. So it was all very, like, second guessing kind of 
Which is why I think I took the stance that I didn't really care because I didn't think that I would really be initially accepted anyways. So the farther I kept getting, I was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm still in this. <laughs> yeah. And I had made great friends. So it was just like, you know, you live in L.A. and you're hanging out with your friends and living together really wasn't a bad. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like what you learned through it is that you're fucking you're rooted in your shit and that it didn't, you know, the things that that make that a shitty thing is not like what enticed you about it. Yeah. So you kind of just like have this positive experience out of this thing that you thought like thought about not doing. Yeah, no, it's it was very positive. I'm so I'm I'm really glad I did it too because I feel like a lot of the fans of the show wouldn't initially I I don't mean to generalize, but I feel like maybe not be as into my music cuz it's much less on the nose pop and like straightforward pop music. But, but it has a lot of pop, pop elements, sensibilities, for sure. and you, you, you know you, you're great at writing Thanks. hooks and and things like that. Yeah, it's 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 certainly not like the most l- listenable music as compared to like top forty kind of stuff. But um, I feel like I've gained like definitely gained an audience from doing the show, and it's been really cool to see how being trying to kind of just remain authentic and be myself on the social media platforms as well as just my like verbiage and when I'm talking to people and and posting about things and see how like I definitely have lost like a chunk of people that followed me initially because the voice is like this thing and they want to follow the people that are on it but I feel like I've like made a lot of new fans and retained this cool new audience that are genuinely interested in what I'm doing for the artist that I am and the art that I'm making and that has been a really surprising and cool takeaway even if it's modest, it's just like, hey, more people listening and, yeah, and buying my records. And that's, that's amazing to me. That's important to your sustainability as yeah. an artist to figure out how to keep doing that. So, totally. Um, I think it's I think it's fucking cool that you did it. You just to, for the experience, and especially the way that you approached it of like this. Is, I'm, I'm not trying to do this. Yeah, it was it was I, I had so much hesitance and. But again, I think a lot of the contestants, like Thunderstorm, I don't know if you watched any of the other ones, but my buddy Thunderstorm, he was like, he placed third. And my friend Zan, she was in the top nine, I think. But, and my friend Zach and Zach Day. And I made a true handful of friends that I know I will work with in the future that, like, we just hung out and became friends. And we'd, like, play board games and drink together and laugh. And, like, the fact that I made friendships uh, with artists that I really respect. Like yeah. genuinely like those are a handful of the artists that I le- met on that show that are like really great songwriters and artists with integrity and it's like yeah we're gonna be homies for like years yeah you know like I went to Thunderstorm's wedding that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> and maybe you, you uh you infect some other people that are even considering doing that the voice yeah and yeah. like letting them know that you can maintain your shit uh, while doing it because I don't know, that was an interesting thing that Haley told me that you know some people in the future would maybe hit her up for advice about doing the show that mm. they were going to be on it or, or or whatever you know it's or if somebody you know one of those people listens to this or something and just gets to hear that like, totally oh Jacob just kind of like did his thing and you know didn't have to feel like he had to completely fit the mold right yeah and I don't know. It was just a very <laughs> a very unexpected experience. It really felt like it happened at me. But then like when the 
I don't know, like the Portlander inside me kind of surrendered to the fact that I was doing it where I was like, oh, what are people going to think? And this is so like mainstream and lame. And I just ended up having a great time. Like the friends I made and, you know, we'd all let's let's do a song share in the hotel room and then we'd all take turns playing original songs and like stuff like that. It's just fun. Yeah. Just fucking surrender to the experience. Yeah. And then you get away from it and you're like, oh, that was really nice. <laughs> yeah. Like the further you get on the show, it is like a ton of work. I got to meet James Taylor. That was pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. He was super sweet. Really gentle guy. Um, I know I'm a few years ahead of you, but was MTV's TRL a big deal to you as a kid? I it, My sisters watched it and I watched it through so second Was it fucking bizarre just like being around Carson Daly? Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> that was well, it was weird too because like the initial blind audition you like do it and you know, I played the song by myself and I got on stage and the <laughs> the doors open, you get on stage and then I played and I picked a point at the back of the room and just like sang to it. So I didn't even realize when their chairs turned really. Like I saw it in my periphery and I was just like, whatever, just keep You got to keep fucking Just keep playing the <laughs> yeah. song. And I think it's really lucky that I'm not a big fan of any of their music because otherwise I probably would have been a little more nervous. But we talked for like 15 minutes on stage afterwards. Like they don't show a lot of it. But right. we had like this <laughs> Cut whole, it into like 30 seconds. whole conversation about the Green Bay Packers and like all of this shit. If you but, pay attention, you can you can feel the edits. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. It's like, totally. whoa, that's a weird cut. Totally. Um, but you get off the stage and then, like, the sound tech takes the guitar. They take your picture right when you get off the stage. And you walk down this little hall. And my mom and aunt are waiting for me with Carson Daly. <laughs> and I was just like, and he's like, congratulations, Jacob. You just got on the biggest show in the world. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Carson Daly. <laughs> That's amazing, dude. Yeah, it was so weird. Um yeah, how much interaction is there with like how how much did you see Carson Daly and, and the judges? Not very often. Like they make it seem like you get a lot of interaction with them, which is like yeah, their time is valuable, and they're doing the show because it is like a cross promotional branding thing. Like they're, it's their job. Yeah, they're making money, and it's like it's not like we're like playing Sega Dreamcast in the back of a van and like kicking it and like smoking. Right, weed. right, right, right. <laughs> but like, how how much time do you end up spending with Nick Jonas, who ends up picking you? We did a dress or rehearsal for you every end up performance. Him, rather. Yeah, we did a dress rehearsal for every performance, and we would have a one-on-one with him for like. 10 or 15 minutes okay um but you like perform the song and then you come on stage and have notes you discuss the notes and so like when it was him and james taylor like we i think i was with just the two of them on the stage for like 10 all of 10 minutes um but it's crazy you know yeah absolutely but and he's super nice and we did like photos with him and he said I, he thought that I was very cool, and he said that I was really funny <laughs> i was like thanks nick jonas <laughs> You're not like I take that as an enormous compliment. You're not like texting with James Taylor now. Oh You're my not texting God. buddies yet. I wish. <laughs> I wish. Oh shoot! You know what? I need to text someone really quick. No worries. We can wrap this up if we need to as well. Maybe in like 20 minutes. Cool. I'd love to talk to you about a few more things before yeah. we uh, before we wrap up. But dude, the fucking Kelly Clarkson reactions are my favorite thing of like watching your videos, and it's and it's probably. Not really? even to her fault necessarily, but there's editing that happens, obviously. But but just uh, yeah, I on the she... on the knockout round, just like 
when she saw you do that like guitar climb with the vocal, she's just like, "Oh my god, Jacob!" <laughs> just like standing up, it's so I know, good. Like, uh, there's like a so part of, cute part of me that wishes I would have picked her, but it's all you know. It is. It is what it is. Yeah. It's weird because like a couple people, like my friend Joanna Serenko, she's from I think she's from Atlanta. God, I can't remember. St. Louis. She's from St. Louis, but um, she got lit. She was literally on everyone's team. Except Kelly, because of saves and steals. So it's just like weird to see how some people got like <laughs> passed around, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, because Thunder, who's like one of my best friends, we were roommates on the show, and he got third, and he's just amazing. I thought he might win it, but he um he went to he was on John Legend's team first, and then went to Nick's team, and so I don't even know that show. I've never seen that show. I've seen your performance. It's <laughs> and maybe it's another very, one. It's very so. convoluted, especially this season because they had to do the quarantine thing. But there's like saves and steals, and if you don't win, then someone can steal you. Or it's all weird. It's but wild. It's a it's a fucking it's a show. Yeah, it is definitely a show. But yeah, everyone was nice. The production was awesome. They were really sweet. I saw uh, one time when we were on the set, we were practicing with the band. Who the band is amazing. It's like, oh, they've sh- got to be. Oh god, this guy Paul. I forget his last name, but he was um, Janet Jackson and Cher's band leader. And amongst them, amongst like four or five tour uh, session musicians, they have like 125 years of touring experience between them. They're just all monsters, and they're so nice. And they were just always. They're nice to everybody, but I felt. A connection with them just because like i when we would have rehearsals i'd write charts for them and send them to them and like no one else would do that like because i had so much practice doing the band so i was like the first time i showed up i remember paul was like all right so times are changing um and he had his harmonica and his keyboard ready and uh and he's like so like uh, do you have the chords and i was like yeah i emailed you guys all charts last night and he's like, oh, we didn't get them. And someone's like, oh, we didn't print them off. And then he's like, well, how about you just play it, Jake? And then he started playing the harmonica, and I was like, can I be super honest with you? And he's like, yeah, what's up? I was like, really not into that harmonica. And he's like, okay, how about you just play it by yourself, and then we'll see, we'll see what happens. And, like, I didn't mean it, like, you know, yeah. I didn't say it in a pretentious way. But you wanted to just, be honest. This is yeah. your fucking representation. Yeah, and I played it. And and then he and the whole band were just like, you sound great by yourself. You should just do it completely by yourself. And he's like, just like riff and play some guitar stuff. And he told me, he was like, play the guitar riff that you do in the solo up top in the song because they'll know that it's probably you playing because one of us wouldn't do a riff like that. So that was kind of like... That's uh, very cool. It was good advice on their part, but the band was awesome. And one time we were... Anyways, one time we were at rehearsal and we were on uh, one of the studio lots we were sharing the studio with Aerosmith and they were there practicing for the Grammys. And when we, when I finished my rehearsal with the band, I left and we were in this van. I, it was just me and the driver of this van. And um, we were driving past and I was like, that looks like, oh, it's Lizzo. And Lizzo was there practicing with her choreographer for the Grammys. <laughs> what like a in trip, the same dude. studio. What a fucking trip. It was... That just like oh this is really strange. Yeah, to this live, is my day to live in Burbank and yeah, like your day would be like ten thirty to eleven, vocal lesson, wardrobe from two to three, and then band rehearsal. You know, like that was the day. You know, and then some days would be like six hours of lawyer meetings and some bullshit like that. <laughs> you, do you feel like? Uh this this COVID thing has kind of interrupted maybe some of the momentum. 
but definitely yeah, yes that's got to be a little a it's little rough to to kind of have get some success get some fucking tv time and yeah. then not really especially on a national level where it's like oh this could really like like if you were playing cities right now it'd probably be that would have been it would have cool. been very nice yeah. it would have been because it's like planting a seed and then watering it you know like people find out and then you want to follow up and have them become a part of your thing that you've got um but yeah i don't know um it's definitely a bummer but you can't really do anything about it so yeah people are in way worse <laughs> situations um, so how important has learning other instruments been to your your songwriting craft oh that's a good question pretty important i would say i've always enjoyed playing other instruments guitar is definitely like the go-to i feel like i can write a melody in my head and pick up the guitar and pretty much know what chords i'd have to play behind it uh i love playing the drums always loved playing the drums played in a couple college bands with my in my short college career basement shows and stuff and yeah. i yeah i i totally enjoy playing other instruments and just falling into them like creating demos and playing every instrument on the demo is like a guilty pleasure of mine because i just like to get really indulgent and take my time and just like do a drum take like 20 times for one for a demo song no one's gonna hear because i just want to mess around with it and then piano and piano is kind of like a beast my grandpa played stride piano and he passed before i was born but i've always gotten a lot of inspiration from him that's him on my arm but i've always wanted to be a great piano player and i've never put the time in but like i love to sit down and write because it's so linear and different than a guitar that i've written a lot of the songs uh, especially for my new record on piano um, but I'm not a piano player. One day I'd love to be proficient at, at keys, but still a good songwriting tool for yourself. And so good because you just approach melody from a different way in a different way. And it just feels like a totally different way to write a song because you have your tool set that you rely upon and in guitar, I'll pick up a guitar and just like play the same four things, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like the ones that you write on the keys sometimes have a little more groove and feel to them? Yeah, I feel like, like the maybe a bigger pocket. The usage of chords is different. Like I'll make much more like I'll make decisions that aren't as obvious, I think, on the piano because I don't know how to play it. And yeah. so when I'm playing the guitar, I like make these calculated decisions melodically and with like chords and composition. Whereas with piano, I'll just like try something and it will be super out to lunch, but I'll love it and then just decide that that's part of the song. And Charlie, my best buddy, is he's a Juilliard graduate and won a Grammy last year and is just a, he's a master of music. That's his title. He's just an amazing musician. And so like he'll, you know, hear one of the songs and be like, why did you put that there? That's so unusual. And like and he's helped. He's incredibly helpful for giving me context for my own fucked up musical decisions. Kind of act as a producer in some ways at, at some kind points, of or, or even just, as just like almost an educator to tell me what it is I'm doing where he's like, yeah, that's cool. I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have thought of that. And yeah, he's he actually did a lot of compo He did the string composition on the this new home record. And then uh, he composed like or some orchestral arrangements for my new record um, that I recorded in February. And there's like some like string quartet and flutes and glockenspiels and like some crazy, crazy shit. A lot of different on. instruments. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Like pretty like 
60s poppy and some of the some of that like big band wrecking crew kind of that shit yeah. yeah so we had a lot of fun we recorded the whole record in nine days which was intense but <laughs> it's almost done so yeah i think that's why i dig your tunes though because they like they do have some like hook sensibilities some of those pop sensibilities Thanks. are there but they that's nice to hear but there's so much like character to the tunes and you can tell that you're you know you're, you are a motherfucker on the guitar. Like, <laughs> oh, you, thanks, man. You know, and you've got, like, I think it's pretty clear, like, you've got the guitar chops when you're, like, listening to the tunes. And, and that's, like, uh. a big part of the music for you is, like, not, it, it seems like you really enjoy the playing as much as the singing. Yeah, the musicality is definitely as much a part of the whole thing for me as the singing. Like, I feel like around the time of The Voice, like, not even the sh episodes airing, but the, me doing the show in October... Like, I felt like I came into my voice a little bit more and became, like, you just kind of realize that you are you use what you're given, and it's, you know, you can improve upon it by practicing and stuff, but you just got to, like, accept it for what it is and make the most out of it, kind of. And for a long time, like I said, I wasn't a big fan of my singing voice. And then you just try to, like, make it compatible with the songwriting and make it all this cohesive thing. So it's always changing, but it's nice to, like, feel like you're making forward movement you know yeah for sure well fuck i appreciate you taking so much time to hang out and, dude and, thanks for coming and, to my backyard and, and, and hanging. chatting about this um i'm stoked to hear that you've already got more music is is kind of like ready to be released then Just yeah it's still it's it hasn't been mixed or mastered in the record there's still some things that need to be done but i'm uh i'm looking forward to kind of like exploring some other options besides self-releasing and working with other people on the record and i really believe in the songs and i'm excited to see what happens with it i think it's you know i've been inspired by a lot of people like uh madison do you listen to madison cunningham no oh god i'll, I'll check it out now though. she's incredible but her and like blake mills and these ethan gruska and like tony berg and these guys down in la just like their composition and everything it's so inspiring and i'm just trying to like tap into that world while still like leaning back on classic songwriting yeah continuing so. to be a student of the game oh my god there's always so much to learn man like never enough never enough <laughs> well this new home is great man that's a killer record Thank there's, you so it much. was so hard for like i usually pick three songs to feature and like there's so just nice. uh it was it was tough for me to to pick between like two knowing that i wanted to put get your love on there as well so oh. i encourage people if you dig what you hear on this episode please check out the rest of uh jacob's record because it's great and there's uh there's a lot of great playing and instrumentation on it and a lot of different a lot of different feels on it dude thank you so much yeah that is uh it's a, it's an emotionally heavy record like very heavy yeah. And that's probably why I like it. <laughs> There's some raw emotion on it. Yeah, this is <clears throat> pretty sad boy stuff. <laughs> Have you always been pretty like comfortable to share yourself in that way? Like when you shifted no, into, actually, you like, shifted into this. Yeah, mode? I feel like with the crooners it was, and then like <clears throat> this new home is just such a per, like a really a personal look into some things I was going through at that time and. It feels like it was almost like all the chips are in at that point. Um, when we did the release of the quarantine songs a couple, like two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, uh, Sean Jewell from American Standard Time 
he's a buddy of mine up in Seattle. He wrote he wrote us up for the thing, and he said that this new home was a devastating divorce record. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually took it out of the article, and later I was like, dude, that was clutch i i loved that and he's like for real i thought it was a little too much i was I like i think that maybe would make people listen to it yeah no it <laughs> is it is uh almost like violently personal but in like uh just a, yeah uh, an honest way i think so i'm, I'm i hope it comes across as i such. mean i think you still leave like a lot of a lot of mystery to like what's happening you know it's not yeah. it's not it's not like overtly like this is what happened it's in, it's i feel like it's up for interpretation but it is uh definitely yeah close yeah well i appreciate the vulnerability of the tunes for sure dude <laughs> thanks man i and appreciate that. this is fucking great dude i have not done one of these in person in like two months oh my god well i'm so this glad like, i could yeah it's like the first time it's been nice out to it like is, be able to do it like, is hot today too it's finally nice outside and i'm hoping you know it seems like more people are getting comfortable with doing these outside hangs hopefully yeah that, we are six feet apart people. yes we are we are we are practicing social distancing uh jacob has his own mic he didn't, True that. You know, we're we're in good shape, but it's nice to. Uh, I'm all for it, though. I I'm finally starting to expand my little inner circle a little bit. We've been taking it pretty seriously. The quarantine. I mean, as you should Same. for sure. Like really not meeting up with anybody. But um, I feel like with the state slowly, slowly reopening and yeah, just the way things. It seems like people now, even because Portland's also so like such a, like liberal bubble that a lot of people I think are really eager to call people out for getting together too soon yeah and so i know there's a lot of social shaming yeah there's a lot of hesitancy hesitancy surrounding that and i want to be cautious of it for safety precautions not for being uh shamed by my peers yeah you already did the voice yeah right yeah that was filmed before (laughs) but um yeah right yeah all the all the shame i can get but yeah i'm ready and i'm excited to like slowly start seeing people again i just miss shows and i just miss like seeing bands i love and being outside with my friends and hanging out and yeah. all, of, all of it, really. Making Especially music up here in the, in the Northwest. The summer is prime time up here. Oh, my God. This is I know. why and we now live the here. Tu- <laughs> the tour plans are canceled, too. So it's just like, yeah, Portland and, or a summer in Portland. That sounds like heaven. Um, well, I'm definitely bringing Andrew over here for some Bible Buds. So you can, pre- you can prepare for that. Right. <laughs> we will sit right here and do I some Bible I will eagerly buds. talk about religion for hours. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is, it's a program. It's a program. You already did it. All right. It's Jacob Miller, everybody. All he, right. he needs no further instruction. <laughs> He's already saying it. Um, I'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can uh, can keep up with you. And like I said, there's Killer. a bunch of videos for people to check out, some live ones, some collaborations up there, uh, and some official videos. So check all that out along with uh, what is available to stream from this fella. And uh, we're going to play it out with one of my favorite tracks off that, uh, off that record. And... Uh, this is definitely one of the more raw ones. Tell, yeah. tell yourself. This yeah. is a, if this isn't a bummer jam. This uh, yeah, is, this is a self-indulgent bummer jam for sure. Well, this is one of my favorite tunes and definitely not something they would have let you play on The Voice. Yeah, def- so, definitely uh, not. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, this is not, not something they can play on the radio. So I, I like to take these opportunities when you can this uncensored show to, to play some songs that have fuck in it. So. Yeah, the F word <laughs> takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> Uh, and that's the Jelly Jams, everybody. And we will catch you on the flip side, Portland. All right, thanks again, man.
the movies in my head keep me from being bored. Ooh, 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 ooh. Real to real, I play 'em back. Lips are moving, but no words. Ooh. Convey a self-assuring plot to spin a web, convince me what I'm not. But I don't give a fuck what you think. Fuck what you say. It don't make no goddamn difference. You tell yourself what you have to be. You tell yourself what you have to be. That's partially true. Crawled so deep into my brain, in attempts to escape you. Your face, hold most frantic thought to play a game. Insist on what is not, but I don't give a fuck what you think. I don't give a fuck what you say. It don't make no goddamn difference. You tell yourself what you have to be. You tell yourself what you have to be. I know that I done the same.
Bender comes in for me. It's a program.